Amen. Today we are launching a, a series entitled Dollars and Cents, A Biblical Approach to Finances. Now, as many of you will know, I have taught on this subject in the past. And there's two things that I, I want to say about that. Number one is, this is an area that needs ongoing focus. This is not a one time, once, and then just sort of leave it in the past. It's something that we need to keep in front of us on a, as an ongoing basis. But secondly, I want you to know, too, that this is not going to simply be a regurgitation of, of past teaching of what we've done. Uh, I'm hoping that we just bring it in a fresh and uh, renewed way today. The truth is, finances dominate a significant focus of our lives. We are constantly driven to improve our financial situation. We're trying to get by. We're trying to get ahead. We're trying to find an advantage wherever we can, looking for our big break. It's just a part of of the reality of our lives. Many of us in this room have at some point in our lives mismanaged finances, have made poor decisions in our lives regarding money. Uh, You know, it may have been even recently. It may have been on your drive-in this morning. The reality in the country that we live in, and sometimes statistics are not really relevant to us, but in Canada where we live, seven of every ten people are living paycheck to paycheck. Seven out of every ten. And most of them are often coming up short because the average family needs more than they earn each month to meet their expenses. We know that in this country, 50% of marriages end in divorce, and it may come as a surprise to you that the number one reason for divorce is pressure and stress from financial scenarios. 70% of people in this country are living in slavery to debt with credit cards and loans and lines of credit and deferred purchases, etc. And so the reality for many in the country that we live in, and I'm sure we are not exempt in this room this morning, the reality is, is that compounding household debt is skyrocketing out of control in our country to the point where even our government's trying to put measures in place so we cannot even access uh, more debt. Now, the reason that these things are playing out, these realities are playing out in our country, is often our habits, our lifestyles, the decisions we make regarding finances are really not based on biblical principles. They're based on cultural principles. They're based on cultural priorities of trying to respond what the culture, to what the culture around us tells us we should be doing with our money. Often it's based on our own personal habits. Some of us are just not good at handling money. We have very poor spending habits, and sometimes it's our own personal priorities. These are the things that really matter to me in this life, and so to get them, we have to spend beyond our means. The problem for most people is not a lack of adequate resources, but really how we're using what we have. And so I believe it's very important for us as the church to 
address the issues of finance from a biblical perspective because there's a lot more at stake here than our bank account. This is about more than money. It's about families. It's about marriages. It's about peace of mind when you lay your head down to sleep at night. It's about integrity. And of course, it's about the work of the kingdom. And so all of these things are critically important, and it's about all of these things. And so over the course of this series, my goal is to address seven themes that relate to money, and there's probably many more in Scripture, but, but I'm just going to choose seven themes that, that I believe relate to money that are found in Scripture that I, will belie- I believe that will help us as followers of Jesus to honor Him with our attitudes and our actions concerning money. And so today I want to start right off the top with the theme of lordship. And I want to start there because I believe that lordship establishes a foundation. It creates a foundation that the other principles build off of. That if that main you know, concept and issue of lordship is not settled in our lives, then then none of the other ones will will settle into our lives either. And so what I'm hoping that as we leave this place today, this is what I'm, I'm hoping that we will understand and see. That it is only when our financial priorities align with kingdom priorities will we handle our finances in a way that declares that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And so that's where I want us to go today. I want to consider two of the most popular Old Testament and New Testament passages about when it comes to lordship. And of course, I'm tying giving into this as well because that's a significant connection to lordship. So I want to start in the Old Testament today. And I want to start by reading a scripture that many of you may have heard before. Maybe some of you don't even like it, but we're going to read it anyway. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Well, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. The context of this scripture is Jerusalem had been destroyed, the Jewish people had been scattered, and many of them had found themselves living in nations that were not their own in exile. And then we reach the book of Nehemiah, and we see that God uses Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and for the temple system to get back into operation again. Now, the result of Nehemiah's work was that some of these Jews who were exiled to other countries began to make the journey back home. And so you have this small remnant of Jewish people returning back. There's high hopes as they come back. They believe that God is going to return Israel to its former glory. And so they're excited about it. They knew, you know what, we blew it last time, but you know what, we, we've learned our lesson, we've, we've suffered our punishment, we're repentant, and we are going to get it right this time. We're going to trust God, and we're going to serve Him only, and we're going to make Him a priority. But it didn't happen 
exactly as they planned. Life was hard. Their crops failed. A cloud of depression had settled down on them. They were disillusioned with God. The priests who were in the temple had become careless in their practices, and they began to neglect God's instructions. And so the circumstances of their reality caused the people to make the proclamation, God no longer cares about us. Because our needs are not being met, God therefore doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about us. And so because they questioned God's lack of intervention in their circumstances, you know, God, you are, you're not doing what we want, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take our toys and go home. And so we're going to withhold our tithes and our offerings because we are disappointed in you, God. Now here's Malachi, this fearless prophet, and he's confronting the people of Israel And he's giving them the words of God, and he's inviting them back to God. And the people said, how can we return to God? How is it even possible to come back? Where do we even start? Where do we begin this process of of once again repenting and coming back to God? And the answer is, you start by doing what's right. And he says, you've robbed God. You've robbed God. You're withholding your tithes and your offerings. The word rob here means to to keep for yourself what belongs to someone else. And so they kept what what rightfully belonged to God. They kept it for themselves. The tithe was God's. And their excuse was, well, you know what? These are tough financial times. And I don't have as much as I need. I need this for myself. And so I can't afford to give to God what he's asking. And God's response is, you are cursed with a curse. Because you've robbed me and you've robbed the whole nation. Now the word curse here, you know, this is not something out of Harry Potter. or The word curse here means literally the removal of the blessing. There hasn't been any rain. The crops are failing. There's suffering that's related to that in the whole nation. The people can't eat. If the, you know, we understand that in Canada, that if the farmers don't have land and, and, the, and the harvest is not good, the people don't eat. And so there's a connection here. Everything is connected. Their, their hardship is because they're not been faithful to God. And the result of their hardship is it's hurting the whole nation. They're keeping what belonged to God for themselves And it was of no benefit to them because in the end, they're worse off. They're worse off than when they started. By robbing God, they've robbed themselves. And so God is reminding them here, he owns the tithe. But it really wasn't about the tithe as much as it's about lordship. The lack of giving on their part was a symptom of their spiritual state. Now, why would, even God, why would God even ask for the tithe? Why would God ask for 10% of their earnings? What purpose would that serve? Well, he answers his own question. He says, so there may be food in my house. Well, God's house is his temple. 
The temple was often referred to as the storehouse because it served oftentimes as a warehouse. And the tithe came in a lot of forms. It wasn't just currency. People were bringing tithe in the form of crops. They were bringing tithe in the form of animals. They were bringing tithe in the form of birds. And so there had to be an area reserved to hold it. So, so it became like a storehouse. And, and so God says, you know, you're, so there could be food in my house. The word food here is a symbol of necessities. God's saying, I, you need to bring it because there needs to be necessities in my house. When the tithe was brought into the temple, the necessities of the temple could be met, of God's house could be met. Well, what were the, what were the purposes of these tithes and offerings? Well, first, in the practice of worship. The crops and the animals were used in the actual sacrifices and worship to God as an act of worship to God. The people themselves were bringing them, but the priests would then take them and offer them up on behalf of the people. And so it was used in the actual ministry, worship. Secondly, it was the support of the temple itself and the income for the priests, because the priests were the only people in Israel who couldn't own land, who couldn't farmland or whatever, they had to dedicate themselves to the ministry full-time, and that left them at a disadvantage. And so the everyday operation of running the temple and keeping the temple in good repair was covered with the tithe and the offerings. These priests who ministered full-time, their needs were provided by the tithe. Food, supplies, basic necessities, shampoo, deodorant. Okay, I don't think they had that, but I'm just throwing it in there. So they could minister to the people the priests and their families were looked after. And thirdly, as a form of benevolence, the offerings were also for feeding the poor, caring for widows and orphans, caring for those who found themselves in emergency situations. The people are struggling. There's no rain. The crops have failed. The livelihood is affected. And God says to them, I want you to test me. I want you to test me. And he calls them to give the tithe and the offerings in faith. And he says, if you do, I will provide for you all of your needs. I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven. I'm going to cause the rain to pour. And you are going to have a harvest like you've never seen. It'll be so substantial. It's going to be more than you even know what to do with. Now, I want us to note something here. He refers to himself as the Lord Almighty. Tithing is not about money. It's not about goods. It's about trust in God to meet their needs when they obediently do that what he is asking them to do, even though it's difficult to do. And so by doing that, by taking that act of faith and believing that they can take God at his word, well, they're they're acknowledging his lordship. You are the Lord of my life. You are going to look after me. I'm trusting you with this. By giving sacrificially to God what incidentally already belonged to God, acknowledged him as Lord. But to withhold the tithe demonstrated to God that they didn't trust him to meet their needs. They proclaimed that they didn't believe that God would do what he said he would do. So therefore, they needed to keep it so they could do it for themselves. So that's our Old Testament passage. Let's look at our New Testament passage. This one's found in Mark 12. 
Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. The setting of this encounter is the outer court area of the temple where both women and men were permitted to mingle and have access. The temple treasury was kept in this common area. Priests were a lot of things. Stupid wasn't one of them. They're going to put the offerings where the highest traffic volume is going to be. There's 13 offering boxes with trumpet-shaped openings. And the contributors would walk up and the Pharisees and those who wanted to draw attention to themselves would announce, I am now putting 50 drachmas in the box for the purpose of the Lord's work. And so that's why Jesus addresses this um, in Matthew. And he says, you know, he accuses them of trumpeting their giving, drawing attention to it. And so we're told that Jesus is there. And I love this. Jesus is a people watcher. Anybody here a people watcher? Right? I like watching people, interacting with them, not so much. But I like watching them. And he's watching them. He's a people watcher. And he's watching the temple treasury. And he's watching the people who are coming up. And he's seeing some of these wealthy people and these spiritual people. And they're, what they're shouting out and what they're putting in. And, and, but it's not the... It's not the rich people that, that gave the large amounts that are catching his attention, that impressed him. He sees this poor widow come up, and he gets the attention of his disciples and says, guys, come over here, I want you to see this. And she threw two copper coins, two of the smallest currency, that's only a fraction of the Roman penny, two of the smallest of Israel's currency, she threw into the box. It's all she had. She's in the temple like all of the other Jewish pilgrims. Why are they there? Well, it's, they're there to celebrate Passover. It's, it's Passover weekend. And this moment was a unique teaching moment for Jesus because he wants them to see this example firsthand. Even though her amount was small, in comparison to the large amounts that were given by many of the others, Jesus said her giving was the greatest. Her giving was the greatest. It wasn't the greatest in the amount. He could hardly do anything to contribute to the things that were required in the temple. But it was greater in proportion to what she had. It was greater in sacrifice. It was a greater act of trust than any of those wealthy people who brought what they did. Because Jesus said, you are giving, they're giving out of their surplus. They can do this, and they should. But she's giving everything she has. That she even gave it all is somewhat confusing. She's a widow. She's not even required to give. There's no expectation on her. She gets a free pass. A widow's life in biblical times was difficult. When your husband died, you either had to go back to your own father's household or live at the mercy of your in-laws. She would be completely dependent on, on them for support. She had no means to make her own money. And often widows had very little, if anything at all, 
That's why the New Testament speaks so much to caring for these widows because nobody was caring for them. Why would she even be giving if it wasn't required? Why is she even doing it? Well, I want to suggest to you today, obviously she's not doing it because she had to. She's doing it because she wants to. She's chosen to. And her gift reflected her commitment to God. His lordship in her life. He's her provider, so I have two copper coins and it's all I have. No big deal. God is my provider. I'm just going to drop them in the box. And her generous act demonstrated that she belonged to him. And everything that she had belonged to him. And so she trusted him with her whole life. In an act of faith, in an act of trust and devotion and lordship, she contributed not 10% of what she had, but everything she had. And while Jesus draws attention to the woman's giving and declares it to be the most, the greatest amount, he doesn't specify in this particular passage what benefit will come as a result. He doesn't say, you know, and now because of that, dot, 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 he doesn't say it. But as we read Scripture from the beginning to the end, there's a familiar theme in Scripture about God's reward and care for those who are faithful, those who walk by faith and not by sight. Now back a hundred years ago in the 80s, and I had my first car, and I worked hard and bought my first cassette stereo, right? Yeah, I am old. I had an Imperials cassette. Anyone remember the Imperials? Yeah. I would rock the Imperials around town. It's better than what they call music now. Anyway, that's another sermon. There was a song on that cassette, I believe, something about if you cast your bread on the water. You know, and I always kind of envisioned it like when you're feeding ducks down by the edge of the, you know, you throw it out and the waves eventually bring it in. But that's not what that scripture is talking about in Ecclesiastes 11 when it says, cast your bread on the water and in many days it'll come back to you. This is actually trade terminology. That farmers would work the fields. They didn't even own the fields. They would work the fields. And the landowner would take the grain that was worked. And some of that grain was used as export to go to other countries. And it would be loaded on the ships and go to the other countries. But here's the catch. The merchant who was putting the grain on the ship didn't get payment for the grain until the ship returned. And so that's the whole premise of that scripture. You cast the grain on the water. Really what it says is this. Ship your grain across the sea and after many days you will receive a return. It's an act of trust. You have to act in trust. You put the grain on the ship anticipating and trusting and believing that in time, you're going to get what you need. Luke 6.38 says, give first, and then it, will, then it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, the amount you invest, will be measured back to you. Again, an act of trust. If you're going to get it back, you got to put it in. You don't put it in to get it back. I mean, when I was raising my kids and trying to teach them about tithing, which let me tell you, is not an easy task. 
some of them would, which will remain nameless, would say, I gave God five bucks three weeks ago. Still nothing. Okay. It's not a bank, honey, with a guaranteed amount return. We don't do it to get the return. We do it to act in trust. We give knowing and believing that God is going to look after our needs. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, remember this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly, if you're cheap, you will reap sparingly. But whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Again, it's an act of trust. When a farmer plants the seed, he could be starving. He's got one bag of seed. His family could eat it, but he won't eat it because he knows that he has to plant it in order to get the harvest that's in the better interest of his family. It's a matter of trust. You plant first, even though it's hard, believing that the seed will produce a harvest. And so the underlying understanding here is that those who are faithful to God, those who trust Him, those who acknowledge Him as the Lord of their lives and act in faith accordingly, they benefit from His faithfulness. Now, I want to tell you, I could tell you 20 stories right now, but I won't. I could get 20 of you that I could point out right now because I know you and your stories, and you could tell them too and affirm everything that I'm saying. This woman's act of trust would result in God's provision and care for her. And my hunch is she had proven that long before that day at the temple. And that's why it wasn't a big deal for her to give it all. Three observations I want to make today as we apply this message to our lives. The first is relevance. When we look at Scripture and this whole idea of the tithe, it's 10% of your income before taxes. No, I'm just kidding. I made that up. It's offerings, which are gifts given out of gratitude that are over and above the tithe. That's what we see in Scripture. Now, there are people. There's books written on it. There's teaching series on it. There's a lot of people that I've had conversations with through the years argue that tithing is an Old Testament concept, and it is not addressed in the New Testament. And I want you to know that there is some truth in that statement. There is some truth in the statement. It is found in the Old Testament. That's where we see the principle established. And there's a lot of detail on it. And the word tithe is not literally used in the New Testament. Now, there's lots of words that we use that aren't in the New Testament or the Bible as a whole. I won't tell you what some of them are because you'll be so disillusioned you won't know what to do. However, I would disagree that the tithing, concept of tithing got dropped between somewhere between in the middle of Maccabees, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Somewhere in the middle of the Apocrypha, this whole thing died. Folks, we can't read the Bible as two separate parts you know, we hear say, well, that's law, and this is grace, this is rules, this is relationship. Yeah, that's cute. But really, that's not a good understanding of Scripture. You have to read the Bible understanding that this is God's redemptive story from cover to cover. 
There's one unifying theme here. Jesus starts in Genesis and Jesus ends in Revelation. There's one unifying theme that's fulfilled with Jesus. It's not two different stories. We don't have two different gods, you know, the mean one and the nice one, that God somehow, you know, during the, the 400 silent years had a conversion experience and became really nice. I mean, seriously, it's one unfolding account. Jesus didn't eliminate the Old Testament law. In fact, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. That's not why I'm here. He said, I've come to fulfill it. And in fact, the principles that we find in the Old Testament are very consistent with the principles we find in the new. If anything, the expectation under grace since Jesus came is even greater. I mean, let's think about it. In the Old Testament, you actually had to engage in adultery to be guilty of the sin of adultery. Jesus said, if you even think about it in your head, at the supermarket next to the magazine rack, or on the internet, or watching a woman walk across a room, you've committed adultery. Wow. It's a lot easier in the Old Testament. Expectations were less. Jesus said, let's talk about anger. If you get angry, it's the same in our eyes as in the eyes of God as murder. Well, in the Old Testament, you actually had to take somebody out. In the New Testament, seething anger is as much a sin as killing somebody. So in, in the New Testament, tithing is not the full expectation of our giving and lordship. It's the starting point. It's the baseline. It's the minimum. I mean, if you want to argue against tithing, you're right. There's no tithing in the New Testament. That's just a jump-off point. It's bigger than that. I would question any argument. Hear me on this. I would question any argument whose goal is for us to give less of our lives and our resources to God. And that is what is at the heart of this argument often. I don't want to have to give it, so I am going to justify why it's not biblical. Any argument that puts us in a position to give God less of us I find that to be problematic. If anything, the theme of the New Testament is this. To whom much is given, much is required. Right? And we've been given. We just came off of Easter weekend. We know what we've been given. And we want to bicker over whether 10% is too much. Hmm. Folks, giving doesn't minimize under grace it flows more freely. It increases. Thank you for all those shouts of amen. <laughs> oh, it doesn't count now. Keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear it anymore. If you can't plan to be spontaneous, then yeah. Ownership. Giving is not about money. Giving is about lordship. When we give, we are declaring that Jesus is the Lord of my life. And then if he is the Lord of my life, then he's the Lord of everything in my life. My purpose of my life is him. Now, we sing that a lot, but don't really connect it back to how we handle finances. I belong to him. 
Shannon Potter belongs to him. Everything that I have belongs to him. I wish he'd take his dog home to be with him. The dog that I'm taking care of for him because everything I own belongs to him. He owns me. He owns all I have. He takes care of me. Again, I could tell you 20 stories. In Scripture, one of the first things to go when people's relationship with God has waned is giving. And it makes sense. Because when you drift from God, you stop depending on God and you start taking care of yourself. And when you're responsible to take care of yourself, well, you need everything you can get your hands on to make it work. When you walk in relationship with him and you put your trust in him to meet your needs, it's a lot easier to give because that burden of responsibility is lifted from you because you can't do it anyway. And he lifts that from you. When you invest financially in the kingdom, you're declaring whether you realize it or not. When that envelope hit that plate this morning, you said, God, I trust you. That's what you said. I trust you. You're declaring, God, I belong to you. And I believe in what you believe in. And when you understand ownership, then giving is a privilege, not an expectation. In the Old Testament, giving was limited to tithes and offerings. In the New Testament, everything we are and everything we own belongs to Him. And thirdly, ministry. Whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, if we believe in the kingdom, we invest in the kingdom of God. He desires us to bring our tithes and the offerings into our storehouse, our place of worship, our spiritual covering. Well, what's our spiritual covering? Well, EPC is. And to ensure the advancement of the kingdom... We then invest in the ministry of the church. We invest in the body of Jesus. His church carries the message forward. We are his church. We are his messengers. Jesus, we do his work. We participate in lives being changed on his behalf. And giving itself is an act of worship. I talked about that earlier at the offering. Because it provides us with a place of worship. We're here because historically people have been faithful to give. The ministries that we run in making apprentices of Jesus can happen because of our investment. We can meet the needs of people who are struggling because of our investment. We can take this mission to the community and around the world because we are faithful in our giving. It provides a means to keep this building in repair, and as it ages, it gets more expensive to pay pastors so they can commit their lives to serving. It makes it possible for us to be instruments in building the kingdom of God through our missional activity in this neighborhood and all around surrounding neighborhoods. And today, there are missionaries scattered in many countries that are using the resources collected here to touch and see the lives of people change for Jesus. Now, I want to wrap this up. Yes, I know. It's the day of miracles, people. Someone recently sent me a video link to Jay John's speaking on this topic. It's, he's an evangelist from England, and I don't know a lot about his ministry. I'm not endorsing him, but he's talking about tithing in this clip. And I want to share it with you this morning as we conclude this message because I believe 
his illustration frames tithing in a really excellent way. Now, I want you to notice that he does name a particular ministry, not in a negative way, but he's actually, the event being recorded, he's speaking at that event, so he's just promoting that. But I want to share this with you. It's about five minutes, and then I'm going to wrap up. There was a man at an airport, and he wanted to buy a bag of very small donuts and a coffee. So he buys his bag of small donuts, and he buys his coffee, and he's looking for somewhere to sit. But all the tables are all taken. But there's one table where there's one man sitting, and he thinks, oh, I'll just go and sit opposite him. So he goes there, he puts his coffee down, he puts his bags down, he gets his coat off, puts it on the chair, sits down, opens his coffee, has a sip, picks up the bag of donuts, opens it, takes out a donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down. The man opposite stretches over, picks up the bag of donuts, opens it, takes out a donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down, smiles. The other man cannot believe what he has just seen. He cannot believe that the man has just stolen one of his donuts. He's thinking, what, I mean, what is the world coming to? What is the world? But then he thinks, well, maybe, you know, the guy's not quite there or, you know, he better not say anything in case the guy kind of erupts and he's violent. But he gives him one of these, if looks could kill look. He picks up the bag of donuts, he takes out another donut, and he moves it near to his coffee, as far away from the other man. While he's sipping his coffee, the man stretches over, picks up the bag, takes out another donut, starts eating it, puts it on the table, pushes it back, smiles. The other guy can't believe it. he's done it twice. He's stolen two of my donuts. He's amazed. He can't believe it. He's really angry. But he decides not to say anything. Anyway, the man gets up to leave. So the other man thinks it's about time you left, you donut thief. <laughs> he put his coat on. He picked up his bag. He then picked up the bag of donuts. There's one donut inside. He takes it out, he breaks it in half, he puts half in his mouth, puts half on the bag, he moves the bag, he smiles, he waves, off he goes. The other guy thinks, I'm not touching that donut, you donut thief. You're probably full of infection. Anyway, he looks at his watch, oh, it's time for me to go. He gets up, he puts his coat on, He then bends down to pick up his bag and sitting on top of his bag was his bag of donuts. (laughs) He was complaining he was complaining that the other man was stealing his donuts when in fact the other man was sharing his donuts. Now, listen to me, listen to me. God owns all the donuts. <laughs> And we're complaining. We're complaining and God owns all of them. 
He owns all the donuts. Listen, every week we get a bag of donuts. God gives us a bag of donuts every week. Inside there are ten. God says, take one of the ten and give it to the church that you go to. Okay, that's called tithing. Okay? So, you give a donut to the church that you go to. Right? They're God's donuts, so don't complain. They're all God's donuts. He just says, give one. Give one to the church that you're part of. So important, isn't it? Yeah, that, now you're left with nine. And you need 11. <laughs> hey, I need 11. I've just given one away. I've only got nine. And what is incredible is, if you need 11 or you need 12, somehow, somehow, the nine becomes 12. Somehow the nine becomes what you need. Now, some of us got 10 donuts. We give one to the church. Now we're left with nine. And we don't need nine. There are many people here, I would say thousands of us here, that do need, we need 11. But I would reckon there are thousands of us here who don't even need nine. And so what does God say? Right, I want you to give a donut to Joyce Myers so that she can go on TV every day. So you give one of your donuts and you become a monthly supporter. Yeah? And, then, and then something else happens, you know, there's a need or this orphanage or compassion or world vision. And you think, oh yeah, and God says, give a donut. Listen, we all get the quiver in the liver. <laughs> and you and I cannot outgive God. And when you act on it, he responds. So what we've got to do is to say, Lord, they're all your donuts. What do you want me to do with them? What do you want me to do with them? And, and if you've got a spare donut, give it to me. I'll have it. If I could only preach like that, right? <laughs> Folks, God owns all the donuts. <laughs> and our responsibility We were never called into the kingdom to be owners. We were called to be stewards of what God has given us to use for his kingdom. Tithing's not about money. Tithing's about lordship. Giving is not about waiting to see if I have enough. It's acting in faith, believing that the one who's the Lord of your life is going to take care of you. And so perhaps this morning we need to take a look at our personal financial priorities. Maybe there's something that needs to change. Maybe we need to live in a cheaper house. I don't know if that exists in this area. Maybe we need to drive a cheaper car. Do cheaper vacations. Spend less on certain things. Maybe we do. I don't know. Only you know. Maybe something needs to change. But I want to remind us as I conclude this morning, it is only when our financial priorities align with kingdom priorities will we handle our finances in a way that declares that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. How we spend says a lot about whether Jesus is the Lord of our lives. Let's stand together this morning. You know, if I was in some of the countries that I've had the privilege of ministering in this morning, we'd do a second offering right now. But we're not going to do that. But we're going to take a time of reflection as the worship team leads us. Because you know what? 
no one else in this room can, can walk into our lives and, and say, this is what needs to happen and that's what needs to happen. My job is to give you principles. Your job is to hear what the Word of God is saying. What is the Spirit of God saying? And how does that relate to my life, my home, my family? That's your job this morning. That's not mine. And so in this time of reflection, I just pray that you will allow the Spirit of God to speak to you and to show you what might need to change. To establish a foundation. To build all the other principles off of. Because if Jesus is not the Lord of our lives, the Lord of everything in our lives, well, clearly he's just not Lord at all. He just isn't. And so we start by surrendering everything. It's all yours. Everything is yours. And so I just pray that the Spirit will speak to you about that this morning. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come because some of you are here today and you need prayer of certain things. There's things that you need to be encouraged in, that you need God to do. And you want someone to pray with you. We want to give that opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, you know what, Pastor? I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'll be honest about that. I have not surrendered my life to him. I'm not a follower of Jesus. Jesus is not the Lord of my life. And maybe after this whole money talk, I'm not sure I want to. But I want to encourage you this morning. If you're here and you're recognizing as the Spirit speaks to your heart, you're not here this morning by accident. And maybe the Spirit is speaking to your heart and saying, you know what, you need to give your life to Jesus. Because Jesus says it's only those who give their lives away to me will actually find life at all. And maybe that's the decision that you want to make this morning and we want to pray with you about that. So as our worship team leads us, would we allow the Spirit access to our thoughts, our heart, our minds, our priorities this morning. What's he saying? What's God saying to us?